Check, check, check. Check, check, check. Check, check, check. All right, Matt, where are we? Well, we're standing uh, just outside of uh, downtown Missoula, here next to the formerly known as the Higgins Bridge, now the the Bear Tracks Bridge. We're at a little, uh, what would you call this, plaque? Commemorative uh, plaque marking Meriwether Lewis and Captain Clark leading an expedition through the Missoula Valley. Um, but the plaque itself reads, in July 1806, Captain Meriwether Lewis of the Lewis and Clark expedition led a party of explorers through the Missoula Valley. On the night of July 3rd, 1806, the party camped at Grant Creek, approximately four miles west of this marker. One thing I really love about the river in Missoula is that it's still, for the most part at least, completely accessible. And it's where the whole town kind of comes together. We've got our our, our bikers and our buskers and our, uh, you know, joggers and... River floaters, river lots floaters. of tubers going by. You know, everyone, uh, it's either spandex or orvis or, uh, you know, the, your favorite local brewery on your back. So even as the area rapidly gentrifies, for now at least, the Clark Fork is still an accessible hub for pretty much anyone, where generations, classes, residents, and non-residents share the space and go with the flow. But meanwhile, we also got quite a, quite a bit of orange construction fencing, uh, blocking off some trails here and there, kind of uh, colliding with, uh, you know, what I remember of the, the character of Missoula. Here's some construction. As long as people have lived in the Missoula Valley, the river has been the center of whatever community is there. And since Missoula's founding, the growth and transformation of the town has been centered along the river. So it makes sense that the ongoing transformation of modern-day Missoula is centered around this area, too. Right by downtown Missoula, standing outside both of our former places of employment, the old Missoulian offices, looking out. Recently sold offices. Recently sold Missoulian offices, going to turn into some sort of a luxury office space, a WeWork or something. We've got the... We originally recorded that joke a couple months ago, before the actual new development at the Missoulian building was announced as two super luxury high-rises. The plans for this premier property along the Clark Fork and the Hip Strip include riverfront restaurants, retail and apartment complexes and condos. But controversy arose when one of the investors, Aaron Wagner, shared offensive comments with Missoula residents online after they criticized the development. Caused a minor scandal. In a conversation with MTN's Katie Miller, Wagner apologized for his actions, saying it was childish and immature. But WGM Group has since canceled that December 6th community meeting that was supposed to help gain insight from hip-strip property owners and neighborhood groups on site design and function. And we've got the Higgins, formerly Higgins Avenue Bridge, now Bear Tracks Bridge. It's a husk of a bridge at the moment. And uh, just around about face from us, we've got some classic old brick houses that are uh, actually currently demolished already and being replaced with uh, 
I think maybe up to like 30 or 40 units of, of truly luxury uh, townhomes slash condos. We can look across the river and uh, sort of see the uh, old, now new mercantile building. Lots of boutique shops in there. and The Marriott Hotel, which is what the mercantile was once a, well, <laughs> when we lived here, it was abandoned. And here we are, just a few steps down along the river trail, right underneath the bridge. You'll be able to hear all the construction going on at another little placard memorializing Clark Fork River Crossings. Uh, we have a little bit about the original Higgins Avenue Bridge being completed in, was that say, 1873, 1878? It's a little rusty. 73, and then a little paragraph underneath it. In October 1891, Chief Charlotte reluctantly led the Salish people across the Higgins Avenue Bridge on their way from the Bitterroot up to the Jocko or Flathead Reservation. It goes on to say, hundreds of Missoulians gathered to watch the Salish, dressed in their finest ceremonial attire as they utilized the quote-unquote modern bridge to enter a new era. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Hey there, listener. Welcome back to Land Grab. John here. And me. That's Matt. So far, we've been tracing the rise of Andrew B. Hammond and the Missoula Mercantile Company, the growth of Montana from frontier into a bustling territory, and the parallel dispossession of the indigenous Salish, Ponderé, and Kootenai tribes. So far, we've looked at how the birth of the Missoula Mercantile Company came with Hammond's deal to provide all the lumber for the construction of the Northern Pacific Railroad in western Montana. And we've gone over Hammond's formation of the Montana Improvement Company with the railroad and the Anaconda Copper Company. Hammond was the mastermind of the Improvement Company's creation of a timber monopoly in Montana, and that monopoly provided the massive amount of lumber required to build the railroad and power Anaconda's giant copper smelter. Hammond was also the brains behind the rampant poaching of federal timber on public lands that made the Improvement Company's operation possible on the required scale. At the end of the last chapter, we found Hammond and the rest of the Improvement Company bigwigs facing lawsuits and indictments from the federal government over their rampant timber poaching. 
In a move intended to shield his personal involvement in the illegal activity, Hammond spun off his vast assets into different newly created shell companies and placed family members in charge to disguise his involvement. The Missoula Mercantile became the name for the retail, grocery, and wholesale outfit that started off as the Eddie Hammond Company, and Hammond placed his nephew and protege, C.H. McLeod, in charge of the day-to-day operation of the store. The Improvement Company's timber business became the Big Blackfoot Milling Company, and Hammond put his brother, Henry, in charge. They also spun off two real estate companies, the Missoula Real Estate Association and the South Missoula Land Company and they created a development company, which they creatively named the Missoula Developers Association. The threat from the indictments was severe enough that the founders of the improvement company carried out a hostile takeover of Montana politics in 1888, betraying their fellow oligarch, Butte's William Andrews Clark, and getting a candidate that they owned, old corkscrew Tom Carter, elected to Congress. We've also been covering the decades of pressure felt by Chief Charlo's bands of Bitter Salish, who had remained in the valley after the Hellgate Treaty provided for a provisional reservation for them there in 1855. The government had been trying to displace the Salish since 1872, when James Garfield came and tried to bribe and intimidate Charlo into leaving the valley. As we know, Charlo refused, but Garfield forged his signature anyway. Almost 20 years came and went. Garfield got elected president in 1880 and was assassinated months later. Andrew Hammond went from a manager of a general store to the kingpin of Missoula County, but Charlo and his band remained in the Bitterroot Valley insisting the government honor its agreement in the Hellgate Treaty. But Charlo's downfall coincided with Hammond's rise. And in 1888, Hammond's Missoula and Bitterroot Valley branch line of the railroad was completed, which connected the whole Bitterroot Valley all the way down south to Stevensville with the trade center of Missoula. And it rapidly increased the development of the valley. That same year, 1888, territorial delegate Joseph K. Toole introduced a uh, measure into Congress that would allow the Interior Department to arrange for the sale of the Salish Bitterroot lands and arrange for their removal to the Northern Flathead Reservation. This chapter, we're picking things up in the fateful year of 1889. Montana is poised on the brink of statehood. The territory's politicians and oligarchs are jostling to get into the best position possible before the new tide of government bureaucracy and corporate development sweeps over Montana upon its inclusion to the Union. We already saw Hammond get his fingerprints all over two of the foundational institutions in western Montana, as his timber played a vital role in making the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Company possible. But this episode, we're going to see his fingerprint continue to expand, even as he faces a huge fight to hold on to his empire when one of his partners dramatically turns on him. We're also going to cover how statehood, big business, and starvation combine to finally push Charlot and his people out of their aboriginal homelands in the Bitterroot Valley. 
Chapter 4 Exodus On November 1st, 1889, hundreds of white, bitterroot settlers gathered at the high school in Stevensville for a celebratory ball. The settlers invited Chief Charlo and other leaders of the Bitterroot Salish as guests of honor. Apparently, there was no alcohol at the event, but leaders of the settler community still gave speeches, read poems, and offered toasts addressed to their Salish guests of honor. But the settlers weren't celebrating the Salish presence in the community. Instead, they were celebrating their impending absence from the valley. The special occasion they were marking, that they had invited the tribe to celebrate with them, was the reaching of an agreement between Charlotte and the U.S. government that would pave the way for the final removal of his people to the northern Jocko Reservation. As we discussed in this last chapter, the celebratory ball came on the heels of decades of tension between residents in the valley and months of concerted lobbying by the region's settler population and ruling elite to get the United States Congress to finally carry out a final removal of the remaining Salish. Charlo, the hereditary chief of the Salish, had steadfastly refused to leave the ancestral homelands of his people for more than 20 years. He'd endured the indignity of the 1872 Garfield Agreement and the tensions of the Nez Perce War in 1877, when Chief Joseph's band came through the Bitterroot. But Charlotte was unable to withstand the arrival of Andrew Hammond's Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad and Montana's impending statehood. Big industry had moved into the valley and had turned its political clout toward removing the last obstacle to its total dominance of the Bitterroot. Territorial Delegate Joseph Toole, again, no relation to our friend Kate Ross, had introduced a bill in Congress in February 1888 that would allow the Salish to sell their Bitterroot lands. The bill would also appropriate funds to carry out an organized removal of the tribe from the Bitterroot up north to the Flathead Valley, what was then called the Jocko Reservation. But the bill stagnated in committee in the House of Representatives for a full year, And by the time February 1889 was coming around, Toole was running out of time. This was before January inaugurations, so his term was up in March. He was leaving his position in Congress to run for governor in what would be Montana's first election as a new state later that year. And he needed something to show his constituents. Tribal members would not get citizenship until 1924, so it's worth noting his constituency was entirely the white settler population. Toole quickly set to work resurrecting the Bitterroot Bill that he had introduced the year before. With statehood on the horizon, Montana was suddenly a national priority. The Democrats had a razor-thin majority in the House, and the Republicans had one in the Senate. But the Bitterroot Bill had bipartisan support in western Montana, and was passed before the end of February, right before the end of the term. But, as we all know, the wheels of government move agonizingly slowly, 
And uh, by the time Congress and the Interior Department got all the funding and the paperwork all lined up, it was already September. And retired Army General Henry B. Carrington was appointed to negotiate the removal. Carrington uh, was something of a notorious screw-up throughout his career. He'd been a general in charge of a group of volunteers in the Civil War, but had uh, never actually seen any combat in the conflict. In 1866, while in charge of Fort Phil Kearney in Wyoming, Carrington had gotten 80 of his men killed in an ambush during Old Red Cloud's War, and then had accidentally shot himself in the thigh, earning a discharge from the army in 1870. In the 20 years between his discharge and his appointment to the Bitterroot, he traveled around teaching military science, writing books on military history, and being involved with the, quote, Friends of the Indian, a Protestant group that advocated for the allotment of reservations and the assimilation of tribal people. I definitely think of Carrington as like half waspy, socialite, military academic guy, half Michael Scott type, a mid-level nincompoop with delusions of grandeur. Carrington arrived and began negotiations with Charlotte, chief of the Bitterroot Salish, in October. And that same month, Joseph Toole was elected governor. When he returned east after negotiations, Carrington spoke often of his time in Montana and wrote a memoir about the experience which he titled The Exodus of the Flatheads. In his published recollections, Carrington greatly aggrandized his importance and his personal role, portraying himself as the messiah of the Salish, the one white chief who could reach Charlotte on a personal level and change his mind about the removal. But the conditions that led Charlotte and the Salish to leave the valley had very little to do with Henry Carrington. The tribe had suffered years of hunger and poverty after the government deprived them of rations and aid, which were stipulated in both the 1855 Hellgate Treaty and the 1872 Garfield Agreement. The first government aid only arrived in 1885 after Indian agent Peter Ronan suggested to the Secretary of Interior, our old friend Henry Teller, that it might make the Salish more agreeable to the move up north. But even then, the support provided was meager and rarely, if ever, went directly to the tribe. Most often it was held in trust or spent by the government on behalf of the tribe. As the tribe slid further into poverty, unable to continue buffalo hunts after 1883, they relied more and more on the small amounts of crops and livestock that they could raise on their patented lands. But then, a devastating drought swept across the state in 1889, further worsening their position. The outlook for the Indians this year is gloomy in the extreme, Peter Ronan uh, wrote in a report that year. The drought of the summer has been unknown even to the oldest Indians. The country is parched and nothing green remains. Devastating wildfires swept across the dry landscape, filling the air with smoke and even sending Andrew Hammond, who had been battling pneumonia and bronchitis in recent years, to flee to California 
to escape the brutally smoky air. Charlotte and the Salish had steadfastly refused to sell their remaining holdings before this, but it is likely that the situation was so dire that they decided that their only choice for survival was to agree to sell and move north. In their negotiations, Charlotte initially refused any of Carrington's entreaties to sign. According to Carrington's account, Charlotte insisted on the, quote, literal execution of the Stevens Treaty, being the Hellgate Treaty, and promised that he would kill himself before signing over the Bitterroot. In Carrington's account, his brilliant interpersonal and diplomatic skills eventually changed Charlotte's mind, but the more likely possibility is that the Salish community came to some kind of consensus that moving was their only choice to survive as a people. The enforced starvation of the people and Carrington's promises that their farms in the Bitterroot would be sold quickly and the cash paid directly to individual tribal members were likely the decisive factors in the tribe making that decision. Charlot reiterated throughout negotiations that he did not trust the government to provide any of its obligations since it never had done in the past, but he was left without another option. So two days after that uh, celebratory ball we were talking about, Charlot met with Carrington and signed the agreement, making a declaration as he did. Charlot loves his people. Charlot will change and do right. Just five days after that, President Benjamin Harrison proclaimed Montana the 41st state in the Union. We're going to take a quick break here and come back and talk some more about the first statehood election of 1889, where old Joseph K. Toole was elected the state's first governor. That election will give us a good look at who's really pulling the strings in Montana at the time and what their real priorities are. Landgrab is supported by ParentingMontana.org. Here in Montana, we want the same things for our kids. We want them to be confident, respectful, and make healthy choices. To grow these skills, I've been using tools and a process I learned from ParentingMontana.org. The website has information for me about my children at every age for dealing with chores, stress, and routines. ParentingMontana.org provides me with a way to build the skills they need to be successful. ParentingMontana.org, tools for your child's success. Brought to you by DPHHS and funded in part by SAMHSA. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making land grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. 
and listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two, which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media. We're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to Land Grab. Matt and John here. Picking up where we left off, the Bitterroot Salish, led by Chief Charlot, had finally agreed to sell their lands in the valley and move north after their enforced destitution had become unbearable. As we'll see shortly, the suffering of the Salish at the hands of a malicious and incompetent government is unfortunately far from over. But before we get to that, we need to talk about the first statehood election of 1889. This election will see the fragile coalition of oligarchs that came together in 1888 break into open warfare, with consequences that still define Montana today. After Andrew Hammond and the Missoula Mercantile Company broke from the Democratic machine to thwart William Andrews Clark in 1888, many expected them to return to the fold for the first state elections the next year, along with their co-conspirators in that plot, Marcus Daly, Samuel Hauser, and the Northern Pacific Railroad. Montana's first election as a state was of huge national importance. In a closely divided Senate, Montana's first senators would have enormous sway. At that time, senators were elected by the state legislature, so down-ticket races were critically important. Daly and the Northern Pacific duly came back to the party, knowing that they could control it from the ground up and get themselves or their chosen candidates into the Senate. But Hammond always had his own best interest at heart. Corkscrew Tom Carter was running for the lone seat in the House of Representatives, and Hammond backed his man. Carter had proven his worth in getting the timber indictments dismissed earlier in the year. Although he was out of the state, Recovering from bronchitis in California, Hammond instructed the mercantile operation to collude with T.C. Power, the Republican candidate for governor, to support that party in Missoula County. C.H. McLeod, Hammond's nephew and main lieutenant, and another Missoula Mercantile Company underling, who we talked about briefly last episode, named Gust Moser, ran the operation on the ground. 
whipping up their uh, little fiefdom in western Montana into shape. The mercantile operation even provided as much as half of the Republican funds in the entirety of Missoula County, which again at this point was the whole state west of the Continental Divide. In a telegraph to T.C. Power, Hammond said, Our company will give the Republican Party financial and moral support to a man, and if you can bring the pinhead politicians into line, we ought to clean up the county. But Marcus Daly sensed trouble. He had been appointed uh, the head of the party after betraying them less than a year before, and he ventured to Missoula to meet with Hammond's representatives, his partner E.L. Bonner, and his nephew and protege, C.H. McLeod. In a stormy argument, Daly implored them to return to the Democratic fold, but McLeod and Bonner, on behalf of Andrew Hammond, refused. Daly recorded McLeod as saying that he would be sorry to lose Daly's friendship over politics, but claimed that a betrayal of the Republican ticket would be a, quote, surrender of his manhood, and stated that he would walk out of the country before doing it. And Marcus told him, uh, well, over there, problems that the grass is going to grow in the streets of Missoula. And he threatened to pull out of all of his deals with the Mercantile and the Blackfoot Milling Company. Remember that Hammond's operations had been the sole provider of lumber to the Anaconda Smelter and Daly's Butte Copper Mines since at least 1884. It was a massive contract that accounted for a huge amount of Hammond's business. At this point in the argument, Bonner apparently got up and left the meeting to go catch a train, and Daly followed him down the street, screaming at him the entire time and threatening to send uh, his own men throughout the region to make it the hardest fight possible for the mercantile operation. But uh, Bonner was unfazed, and he replied that they would support the Republican ticket if it took half of what they were worth. And that was probably not too much of an exaggeration. The split threatened their relations with their two biggest partners and their two most formidable adversaries, the Anaconda Company and the Northern Pacific. These former partners who had brought Montana to the cusp of statehood with their industrial growth as the Montana Improvement Company, were now about to go to war over that new state's political future. You know, I think both of these guys, or all of them, you know, they're all prima donnas, and they all they all get pissed off at each other, you know, from a personal slight. What's interesting is I came across... That's Greg Gordon our resident Andrew Hammond expert. We've heard him in the last two chapters. And once again, his book on Andrew Hammond's life is called When Money Grew on Trees, A.B. Hammond and the Age of the Timber Baron. Well, mostly it's politics, right? Daly is devout uh, Irish Catholic Democrat. Um, And Hammond starts out, as a Democrat and then becomes a Republican. And there's a lot of back and forth uh, 
you know, that sort of stems from the the the, um, the Clark Daly um, feud and, um, and and the expectation is that Hammond and Bonner are going to rejoin the Democratic Party. And Montana is one of the few states outside of the South at the you know in the 19th century, the post Civil War era that's Democrat mm-hmm. in many ways. You know, is controlled in, in a lot of ways, and so. Um, Daly's gets a little pissed off that they won't back, they won't come back to the fold. But Hammond and his partners were actually playing both sides. And the mercantile operation colluded with their friend T.C. Power, who they'd worked with in the 1888 betrayal of William Andrews Clark. Power was the Republican nominee for governor, opposing Joseph K. Toole. Together, Hammond and Power instructed Western Montana to vote for the Republican, corkscrew Tom Carter, for Congress, as well as Republican candidates for down-ballot state legislature races. But Hammond, with McLeod as his point man in Montana, also instructed their operation to vote for the Democrat, Joseph K. Toole, for governor, over their co-conspirator, T.C. Power. So they used T.C. Power to get Republicans elected in every Missoula County race, except for the one Power was actually running in. And then they provided the crucial votes to elect his opposition. If you're looking for an explanation as to why Hammond split the ticket, I think it's probably just the obvious one. Hammond was rewarding these men who had been loyal to him. And more importantly, men who had succeeded in finally getting some of Hammond's long, frustrated priorities over the line. I think the best way to lay all this out, to understand it, is to think about Montana's last three territorial delegates at this point. You have Corkscrew Tom, who's currently in office, Joseph K. Toole, who had it previously, and a dude named Martin McGinnis, who had it before that. We've talked a little bit about McGinnis last episode, but he was the delegate in Congress when the timber indictments first appeared, and he tried and failed to get them dismissed. McGinnis was also a big part of the first concerted attempts to get Charlotte to leave the Bitterroot after the whole Garfield debacle. In 1883, he and Senator George Vest visited the Bitterroot Salish to see what could be done about the situation, and he was in the room with Secretary of Interior Henry Teller when the two of them tried to bribe Charlotte with a personal stipend in a meeting in Washington in 1884. And again, on both of those occasions, he failed. But then Joseph Toole came into office, and again, he tried to get the timber suits dismissed and failed at that. But as we just covered in the first part of this episode, he did succeed in getting the final bill, arranging for the removal of the bitter at Salish, approved just before he left office in early 1889. Then Corkscrew Tom, of course, came in and immediately got the timber suits dismissed under the newly friendly Republican administration. Hammond and McGinnis had grown pretty antagonistic by the time 1889 came around, and Hammond backed Corkscrew Thomas Carter in direct opposition to Martin McGinnis, who was running for the same seat in the House of Representatives. 
That makes sense with Hammond's new Republican alignment. But then he'd need a pretty significant reason to turn on his Republican co-conspirator, T.C. Power, in order to elect Joseph Toole, the Democrat, governor. And there's really nothing to point to in Toole's record leading up to all this, other than the removal of the bitter at Salish, to suggest what he had done to earn Hammond's support. The mercantile interference also contributed to Montana's first election as a state devolving into a farce, filled with allegations of fraud, bribery, and just about every other political dirty trick in the book. Hammond's support of Republican candidates for the state legislature led to the House ending up as an even split between Democrats and Republicans. Both parties challenged the legitimacy of the other's victories, and when the legislature did finally convene, the parties actually refused to recognize each other and held separate legislative sessions. Remember that state legislatures were the bodies that elected senators at this point, and this split legislature ended up sending four senators to Washington the next year. The Democrats sent William Andrews Clark and Martin McGinnis to the Senate, while the Republicans sent T.C. Power and the old vigilante leader Wilbur Fisk Sanders. The slim Republican majority in the Senate sent Clark and McGinnis packing, seating the Republicans. The scandal became national news and led to a full-blown inquiry in the Senate and made sure Montana began life as a state as a political pariah. Talking about this crazy election, Wilbur Sanders gave a quote that not only summed up the feeling at the time, but has no small amount of relevance to the feeling today. Here it is, read by our friend Kay Ross Toole. Old Wilbur Fisk Sanders, who subsequently becomes a United States Senator at long last, wrote to an old friend in 1895, and he said in that letter, There must be observed painful dilutions of our political and moral life since the great influx which has separated the life of adventure from the scramble of greed. It is a dull vision that does not see great changes in Montana. In our politics, it is not thought necessary that legislators should comprehend the principles of government. I desire those in the legislature who could not be hoodwinked or bribed, but the weaklings are not of that quality. That same year, 1890, the Bitterroot Salish were reluctantly preparing themselves to move north. Henry Carrington, the old general appointed to carry out the removal, had promised in his agreement that their Bitterroot lands would be sold quickly and that the removal would begin that spring. Anticipating the removal, the Salish didn't plant any crops within their Bitterroot lands, as it would have been a lot of wasted labor if they were only going to leave before the harvest. But Carrington had done a sloppy job appraising the lands and the improvements that the tribe had made and white farmers and developers largely colluded to keep prices down when they were bidding, only four lots were sold in 1890. The government was also delinquent in providing funds for subsistence rations that Carrington had promised in the agreement. The Salish, understandably, didn't want to move north until they had been paid for their bitterate holdings, 
and Congress still had not appropriated any funds to actually carry out the removal. So the payments never came. Carrington never showed up to conduct the removal. Rations never arrived. And the situation got even more dire. Over the winter of 1890 and 91, the Salish had been left so impoverished that they were forced to subsist on the meager provisions that Peter Ronan could supply from the Jocko Reservation, offal from a nearby slaughterhouse, and the horses and cattle that died from the cold. Congress didn't approve funds for the actual removal until July 1891, almost two years after the agreement had been made. When Carrington finally returned to the Bitterroot that month, he found the tribe, quote, sinking daily into misery, wretchedness, and want, and encountered a devastated Charlot, who he said was, quote, more grieved than angry, and insisted that he would talk no business until his people were fed. But again, a combination of Carrington's incompetence, government negligence, and collusion by area settlers slowed the process down. The Salish still refused to leave until they had been paid for their properties in the Bitterroot, but an economic depression was moving over Montana, and the appraisals Carrington had made of the Salish lands were higher than the lands were worth by the time 1891 came around. Additionally, the General Land Office insisted on conducting the sales from Missoula rather than Stevensville, making it harder and less likely for local buyers to turn up. And those buyers that were interested colluded again and refused to even bid until their appraisals were lowered. By the time the fall of 1891 came around, the Salish resolved to make the march without any of the preconditions having been met, in the hope that it would engender better treatment from the government who wanted them gone. According to Carrington's personal account, Charlotte told him that his decision was made in the best interests of the survival of the tribe. Quote, The great spirit gave me these thoughts. Charlotte, go with your people. They will starve or freeze here. Nobody will buy your land if you stay. Go and pick out good land and build houses before winter. Shut your ears to the lies bad people tell you. So I think that it's really clear to see that the decision to finally leave the Bitterroot Valley was anything but willing. In reality, it was essentially extortionary. The Salish were subjected to this escalating level of enforced poverty until their only choices were to fight or acquiesce. Charlotte only had to look at Chief Joseph and his band of Nez Perce who at this point were imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, to know that fighting was not a viable option. Over the same period the Salish were battling for their survival, Andrew Hammond was engaged in a serious battle for his empire. After the election of 1889, Marcus Daly was making good on his threat to ruin Hammond and Missoula. Daly and Hammond had been deeply intertwined since the formation of the Montana Improvement Company and still had many contracts and deals together when the schism occurred. 
The Big Blackfoot Mill had an exclusive contract to supply all the lumber for Daly's Mines in Butte and the Anaconda Smelter. Daly and Hammond were the two key stakeholders of the First National Bank of Missoula, and Daly served as its figurehead president. And the two had just entered into a deal to build a railroad throughout the Gallatin Valley. In his first broadside against Hammond, Daly and his underling, a man named D.J. Hennessy, purchased the old Higgins and Warden Mercantile in Missoula, Hammond's old competitors, and began rebranding it the Hennessy Mercantile. The sole intent of this new mercantile venture was to compete with the Missoula Mercantile and even eventually drive it out of business. Next, Daly withdrew all of his assets from the First National Bank and resigned as its president. He pulled out of the Gallatin Railroad deal and canceled Anaconda's contract with the Blackfoot Milling Company. Hammond had to cough up $102,000 to purchase out the bank stock, pay back $75,000 for the Anaconda contract, and another $10,000 for the railroad contract. An amount that would be tens if not hundreds of millions of today's dollars. Marcus Daly then started to pour resources into the Bitterroot Valley. Hammond had uh, been planning his own company town there called Grantsdale, but Daly announced plans for a new town that he would build and call Hamilton. And he began construction of a large sawmill at the town site. This signaled the beginning of a long-term plan to build out and vertically integrate Anaconda's lumber operation so the company could fulfill all of its own timber needs and not be reliant on Hammond. Daly also announced plans to start a new bank and build a new railroad in Missoula and even started his own umbrella corporation, which he called the Montana Commercial Company. So many bland corporate names in this story. It's just a treat. Improvement Company, Commercial Company. We'll get the Montana Development Company in a later episode. And here's Marcus Daly moving everything out of Butte and building the town of Hamilton, which was going to supersede Missoula, which was Hammond's town. This is Ty Robinson, who we've heard from before. Ty worked as in-house counsel for the Missoula Mercantile starting in 1948. And he learned his history of the store firsthand from C.H. McLeod's son, Walter. He's talking in an oral history with Greg Gordon in this tape. Suffice to say, Daly was not kidding around. But neither was Hammond, and he fought back in his own way. The Blackfoot Mill increased production at its door, sash, and shingles factory and expanded its marketing area to absorb the loss of the Anaconda contract. Hammond incorporated another real estate company, on top of the one he already owned, to block Daly's growth in the Bitterroot. The mercantile company expanded, adding a second-story addition to the building, and Hammond began construction on two more formidable buildings on the corner of Higgins and Front Street, the Hammond Arcade and the Florence Hotel. The two titans of industry were engaged in their fierce contest for all of 1890 and continued it until the spring of 1891. 
Hammond was largely out of Missoula throughout this period, traveling to the coasts for business and health reasons, but he stopped for a short visit in mid-March of 1891. Something important must have been going on, because shortly after this visit, in early April, Daly announced the dissolution of the Montana Commercial Company and the selling of the Hennessy Mercantile and all of its stock to the Missoula Mercantile, and his plans for a new bank and railroad never materialized. Daly was only successful in guiding Hamilton to usurp Grantsdale as the economic center of the Bitterroot, and that success led him to eventually surpassing Hammond in the lumber business in Montana. Clearly, some kind of peace had been made. But the nature of that peace, and the reasons behind it, would remain a secret well into the 20th century. But it goes back to the fact that and Hammond made the deal, uh, they were in cahoots, as you probably know all the way through, Marcus and Hammond. Well, they, they seem to come and go, I mean, they seem to get in fights and then get together. That's what and, they do. And the same thing with Higgins and Hammond. For two reasons, go back and I've forth. concluded. Marcus was a good Irishman. He was a Catholic. Right. Hammond's an English... Episcopalian. <laughs> Episcopalian. <laughs> Right. And in those days, I suspect that was something that counted. Well, yeah, and I wonder about that because McLeod, Keese, all those guys from New Brunswick were all good Protestant Republicans, oh, yeah. and you had the Irish Catholic Democrats. Irish Catholic. And I can understand how they would, they would, they would split apart, but what brought them, what kept bringing them back together again? Greed. <laughs> okay. It had to be. I don't know what else. And again, you know, there's uh, another book by a, a sociologist that sort of puts this in context. It's called The Power Elite by C. Wright Mills. I think he wrote it in the 50s. Um, and it, what he's suggesting here is there's, there is this established cultural social elite, right? It's, it's that we think of these guys as, as being antagonists, but they're really on the same team. They're, they're competitors, but they both have, they all have the same interest. Mm. And that is to make as much money as possible over the natural resources, right? They're not, they're not like Hammond and Sparks, right? Sparks wants to basically, as land commissioner, um, destroy the lumber companies as, as corporations. Um, he wants to take back the railroad grant lands. He wants, he's very sort of a democratic in the small D sense, reformer of like the idea of like, you know, corporations are bad and the bigger the corporation, the worse they are. Mm-hmm. So that's a very different sort of anti, that's much more of a, a polar opposite of interests. Whereas Hammond and Daly, they have the same interest. <laughs> By the time the summer of 1891 rolled around and Carrington was back negotiating the final removal of the Salish from the Bitterroot, Hammond was at the height of his power in Montana. In the previous year, he had come up against Daly and the Northern Pacific Railroad in politics and business and beaten them both. In Missoula, he owned the Mercantile, which was the largest 
retail and wholesale operation from the Twin Cities to Portland. He owned the First National Bank, the Missoula Real Estate Association. He owned the Missoula Publishing Company. And he owned the Blackfoot Mill. Which is Bonner, the precursor of the Bonner Mill. Which still enjoyed what was essentially a timber monopoly in the state. He owned the South Missoula Land Company, the Missoula Water Company, the State Lumber Company, the Street Railway System, the Light and Power Company. Most of the real estate, 90,000 acres of prime timberlands. And the local cemetery. Uh, There's something lugubrious about the fellow, perhaps, I don't know. It's impossible to live or die in Missoula at this time without sending money to Andrew B. Hammond. Across western Montana, the Merck had branch stores in every commercial hub of the region, from Demersville on the north end of Flathead Lake, what is now Kalispell, all the way down to Stevensville at the southern end of the Bitterroot Valley. And they owned mills and lumber operations in northern Idaho and eastern Washington. No political office, from the lowest city position to Indian agent to congressman to the state judiciary, was granted without his express approval. He was the unquestioned, although certainly not beloved, ruler of the region. We're going to take another little break here, but when we come back, we're finally going to cover the long walk of the Bitterroot Salish as they finally make their trip up north to the Flathead Reservation. See you on the other side of the break. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is an interview with Mrs. Dorotha Smola in Stevensville, Montana, and the date is Wednesday, August 3rd, 1988. Dorotha, that is an unusual name. I, I know a lot of Dorothys, but uh, you're the first Dorotha I think I ever knew. And you have been referred to me as an excellent source of Bitterroot history, Stevensville history. So I'm uh, very eager to talk to you about your roots. And I understand they go back pretty far in this area. This is an oral history interview with Dorotha Smola, whose family settled in the Bitterroot Valley in the 1860s and witnessed many of the events we've covered so far firsthand. Well, I wonder what your grandfather had to say about the Flatheads, who were very peaceful, 
-hmm. very clean, very good people. He really loved them, mm -hmm. and he thought that it was really bad the way they were treated and cheated out of this area. Mm -hmm. Because he had many friends. Did he talk at all about when they were moved out of here, you know, in the early 90s? Well, um, Dad remembered, because he was born in 87, of standing out the, beside their house and watching them go. Mm -hmm. Isn't that sad? On October 15, 1891, two years after he had reached an agreement with Carrington, and 20 years after the forged agreement with Garfield, Charlotte took a final look around at the astounding, snow-capped peaks and autumn-colored leaves of the Bitterroot Valley in fall, and led his people on a solemn march up north. Salish oral histories recall the march being led by an escort of troops from Fort Missoula that was led by Carrington. In his published recollections, Carrington claims that Charlotte demanded there be no military escort for the march other than Carrington himself, so it would appear the Salish were leaving willingly. Reports of the march in the Missoula papers at the time don't definitively say either way. As we've touched on, Carrington is not exactly the world's most reliable narrator, so we're more inclined toward the Salish recollection. Well, when we finally... Our people were sent out of the Bitterroot. Uh, old lady Combs, Mary Ann Combs, she died in 1977. She was a relative of mine. I used to go visit her all the time. But she used to say, when they had to leave the Bitterroot, everybody was crying. This was in 1891 when the last bunch of Charlotte's people had to leave. She said, everybody was crying, even the men. She said, when we crossed the river to, to leave our, our homes. This is Louis Adams, a Salish elder and tribal historian who passed away in 2016. This tape is from an interview he gave with Montana's Office of Public Instruction. The valley would have been scarcely recognizable from the place Charlotte had grown up in. Dairy farms and orchards replaced the lodges and camas fields the Salish had known. Carrington noted that sawmills along the entire route were rapidly clearing off the best pine timber and ruining the trout streams with the clogging sawdust. And the loud rattling and belching of Hammond's Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad was incessant. Defeated and starved out of their decades-long fight to remain in their aboriginal homeland, the march took on the air of a funeral procession. The Salish presented themselves in their best dress, and Charlo enforced a strict code of order. But nothing could distract from the sobs and the wails of the heart-wrenching trauma of being forced to leave home. As the march began, Carrington wrote, the great mass of horses, wagons, and people melted into a column more than a mile in length, and began to move north through the valley. It took them three days to get here because they camped uh, at one place. They 
called uh, on the other side of Mkaa, which is on the other, on this side of uh, Lolo. There's a big bend there. They camp there. Charlo had the tribe split into three groups for the trip. On the second day of the march, they arrived at the south end of Missoula at the old Higgins Bridge and prepared for the trip through town. Two groups, including the one led by Charlo, crossed the Clark Fork River at spots away from the prying eyes of downtown Missoula. But a group led by the subchief Louis Vanderberg crossed over the bridge and through downtown. As they walked through the intersection of Higgins in front, dominated by Hammond's buildings, a surreal silence fell over the procession, and white residents of town gathered to watch the slow march. Carrington's account of the walk through town gives his perspective. Never was there a Wild West show so dramatic and at times pathetic in its slow and steady procession. The streets were lined and the windows were crowded with lookers on. To the casual observer, the silence of the march, the close order observed, the inquisitive glances of the Indians, gave no hint that many were weeping and longing to get away from the gaze and criticism of the white observers. When actually clear of the town and its people, the spirits of all revived. And then the next place they camped was uh, on the side of Missoula, by where the where the willow or where the cottonwood trees are. When you come out of Missoula and come down, not the freeway, but uh, the old highway. Before you get to the airport, there's some cottonwoods on the left or north of the highway. That used to be, I guess, used to be nice in there. But that's the second place they camped. And then the third place they camped was at Schley, or Ever- on this side, Evero. Schley drainage there, where the old highway used to come through. But that's where their, their last camp was. The Salish passed through Missoula, and the next day made their arrival at the northern Jaco Reservation, where they were greeted with a feast at Indian agent Peter Ronan's house. The, the morning, they, they, when they got up and got ready to go meet the rest of the Indians that were already here, everybody was camped up there by the old Jocko Church by Agency Creek. She said, all the young men dressed up like they was going to go into war. They painted up, they made their roaches high, and, they, and when they all headed out, they got close to the Jocko where all the people were, were camped. Everybody went fast, just like they were attacking. He said, and a lot of people told him later that they really thought they were being attacked until they got there, you know, and they were just pulling a prank on them. Vandenberg's family name in Salish became Bear Tracks. And in April 2021, the Missoula County Commission announced that the new Higgins Avenue Bridge would be named the Bear Tracks Bridge, to commemorate Vanderberg, his family, and the Salish history at the crossing. The name was chosen by the Salish Kalispe Culture Committee, the CSKT Tribal Council, and Vanderberg's family. As we've seen throughout the show so far, the fortunes of the Salish and the Missoula Mercantile Company have been in lockstep, even as they trend in polar opposite directions. Each upward leap Hammond and his operation take 
comes with a concurrent blow to the security and the sovereignty of the Salish. Each surge in profits coming as a direct cost to the tribes. Remember from the last episode that the improvement company was only able to form its illegal timber monopoly thanks to the selective interpretation of the Timber and Stone Act by Secretary of Interior at the time, Henry Teller, who granted total carte blanche permission to the company to cut federal and reservation timber while simultaneously preventing actual tribal members on reservations from establishing any kind of commercial timber operation. And now, the boon of the Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad and the surge of industry in the valley was only possible through the forced removal of the Salish. And the trend only continued in the aftermath of the removal. As soon as the Salish left the Bitterroot, white settlers in the valley ransacked their cabins, stealing seeds and grain, smashing windows, and pulling down fences. More settlers moved in, building new homes with materials bought from the mercantile, and shipping products into Missoula to be sold at the mercantile. On the Jocko Reservation, Charlo and his band continued to wait for the money earned from the sales of their Bitterroot titles. Again, Carrington's incompetence, government negligence, and collusion among settlers had adverse consequences for the Salish. The General Land Office began allowing settlers to only buy portions of the Salish lands in the valley so they could pick and choose the productive sections and purchase them for rock bottom prices and just straddle the Salish with the rest. The government was also, again, delinquent in releasing payments for the lands that were sold. Salish landowners didn't get their first payments on the lots sold until March 1894, 29 months after the removal. The funds from that payment, $16,000, and another payment the next month for $18,000, were paid to the Hammond-owned First National Bank of Missoula and then distributed to the Salish. Much of that money stayed right on that intersection and went right back into Hammond's pockets as the Salish bought much-needed supplies and paid off the predatory debts the mercantile had charged them with. The Salish also had the compensation for Carrington's work in the negotiations deducted from their payment, which, in typical Carrington fashion, had gone more than 200% over budget. Carrington had also made promises to provide food rations and money for improvements to the Salish's new Jacko farms that were never fulfilled by the government. Carrington went back home to Massachusetts and wrote his book and cast himself a hero in the story, while Charlotte was left to rebuild his community on the Jacko Reservation and harbored resentment over yet another series of unfulfilled promises and outright lies from the U.S. government. We're going to end things here for this chapter of Land Grab. In the next chapter, the Capitol and the University are up for grabs in the brand new state of Montana. And Andrew Hammond 
wades in on Missoula's behalf as a powerful populist backlash builds against his regional omnipotence. There's a good little hanky-panky here. Montana went on a binge of booze and free parties and free everything, all designed clearly and openly to buy votes. But in the meantime, under the table, I take it that Hammond had made some deals with the people in Helena that if they got it, why, then we'd get the university here. McGowan came out to Sullivan one day and said on the evening train, there are 250 men arriving to work in the woods. And Sullivan said, Mr. McGowan, I, I can't put those people to work. There isn't enough work for them. And McGowan said, who's talking about work? You just be damn sure they vote for Helena. And they arrived, and they were all loaded, but they all voted for Helena. Now, Hammond owns South Missoula Land Company. You're familiar with that. Right. You're looking at the last surviving witness of the Missoula Land Company's hierarchy. Everything from the river to South Avenue was South Missoula. S.T. Hauser, whom you've heard of before, was subsequently testifying before the Committee on Privileges and Elections in the United States Senate. And an incredulous senator asked him, he said, do I understand you to say that in these Montana elections, a million dollars would go for legitimate expenses. To which Howard Hauser replied this way, it would depend on what you would call legitimate expenses. I presume in the East, some of these expenses would hardly be considered legitimate, but we are not in the East. Land Grab is written and produced by John Hooks, Matt Newman, and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.